Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I'm very excited to be sitting down with Vanessa Vicaria, founder and CEO of The Math Guru, a boutique math and science tutoring studio, published author, public speaker, and successful musician. Vanessa, welcome to the podcast. It's very excited to have you on. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you take us through your career and personal journey leading up to today? I can. That is a very big question, but I'm just going to give you the Coles notes, the highlights, the juicy bits. Awesome. So it all started when I was in grade 11 at a very academic school and I failed grade 11 math, not once, but twice. I was very busy wanting to be a rock star and wanting to marry Keanu Reeves, both of which are my goals to this very day. Keanu Reeves is not married yet, so don't at me. Anyhow, <laughs> so I was always told that I just wasn't a math person and like that's why I wasn't succeeding in math. And I was like, yeah, of course, I'm meant for the Hollywood Hills. Like I'm born to be a rock star. Of course, math isn't my thing. So my parents, who were like kind of supportive, but they were also like, what the fuck are you talking about? You need to graduate high school. After I passed grade 11 math, the third time taking it with a 57, my parents sent me to this private alternative school. And this school was like a vibe, okay? Like (laughs) only 100 kids in the whole class. We like didn't wear our shoes. We called teachers by their first names. We had actual cigarette breaks. I'm not saying that I approve of that, but I'm just saying they showed an understanding for what students needed at that point in time. Interesting. Like they were kind of like, all of our students are going to smoke. They're either going to be late for class or we're going to give them breaks and they're not going to be late. I just thought it was, it was an interesting way to be student centered when it came to education. Yeah. Who cares about the smoking? Obviously it's bad for you. Fine. So I go into my grade 12 math class and I say to my math teacher, Eva, who's my best friend to this day, I'm like, you're going to have a lot of trouble with me. I'm not a math person. And she looks at me and she's like, sorry, what? And I'm like, I'm not a math person. And then she looked at me and said the words that would change my life forever, which were, that's not a thing. I ended up with a 90. Yeah. I ended up with a 98 in math that year. Obviously, I didn't suddenly become a genius, but my whole mindset changed. So when I faced an obstacle in class or I didn't understand something, my default wasn't, oh, well, I'm not a math person. My default was, well, apparently that's not a thing. So there's got to be some way for me to succeed. So it caused me to be really resourceful to see my failures and struggles as paths to success. Like it was this whole thing. And I became so enamored with this idea that like my limiting belief had been smashed in this right. of a year that I was like, oh my God, I need to do this for everyone. Like, so I was tutoring math to everyone in our class. Like I was just so passionate about it. I was like, oh my God, I need to show everyone that this whole thing is a lie. Anyway, cool. A bunch of stuff happened. I ended up like going to university for business. I got a marketing degree. I did a bunch of weird things. But at the end of it all, I always came back to that passion of wanting to show people that they were capable of so much more than they thought through math. Right. So I ended up going to teacher's college, getting a teaching degree. I taught for one month in a high school. It was actually hell. Literally, (laughs) I'm so bad at yelling at people. So like every time I turn around, like all the kids would be like outside smoking joints and like people would just be like yelling and I'd be like, guys, can you please pay attention to me? But I loved it so much. I just like the discipline part was not for me. Right. Left that position. I ended up saying, Hey everyone, I'm going on a trip to India in six months. I'm going to be tutoring privately. If you want a private tutor, let me know. I ended up getting so many students that I was working from six in the morning till 11 at night. Like I was meeting kids at Starbucks at six in the morning and teaching them math. And I loved it because one-on-one, you really can get into the mentality around math that every single student has. 
school, whatever. I go to India. I come back. I want to keep traveling. My parents are like, hell no. I'm like, what if I do a master's? They're like, fine. So I go to BC and I do my master's in math education where my thesis was called Imagining a World Where Paris Hilton Loves Math. And I studied the effects of media specifically on girls when it comes to math ability. I went back to that time where I was told I wasn't a math person. Why wasn't I a math person? Right. Creative because I wasn't like a white dude because I speak the way I speak because like I paint my nails blue. I don't know. All of those things that like we get from Hollywood stereotypes. So I ended up doing all that research. And after I was done, I opened a tutoring studio called The Math Guru. I didn't do that, actually. What happened is I went back to personal tutoring and I got really busy and I had to hire someone. (laughs) And once I hired someone, I was like, should I like rent somewhere? I was tutoring out of like my one bedroom apartment. So like had a mattress I slept on. And during the day, I put it up against the wall and I would tutor in that room. And then at night I would sleep on it. And eventually we just grew into this space. And now The Math Guru is a space with 40 tutors. Our whole goal is to break stereotypes around math. We have pink velvet couches and tea lattes and we burn incense and like hire, you know, magicians, athletes, musicians, lawyers, like all people from all different walks of life to teach math. So kids can see there's no one way to be a quote unquote math person, right? Like math people don't exist. So, and then from that, like all these other things, I have this podcast called Math Therapy. I have a series of math books with Scholastic. I am in a rock band. The most important part, we opened for Bon Jovi a few years ago. The dream is alive. It's still happening. Um, Yeah, the end. I, I would hardly say it's the end. It feels like it, it, you're on like the hockey stick part of the curve where everything's just exponentially exploding, right? Like oh, yeah. this is an incredible story. And for me, particularly and selfishly, I have two very young daughters, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And this idea of totally bucking the trend around women in math and the general stereotypes in math is huge for me. Because I think, from my experience, being, as you described, a white dude, I was always told math and sciences were where I should be and that I'm good at those things, right? Yeah, okay, I was relatively good at them. But math wasn't like, once I got past a certain base level of math, wasn't like, you know, brain dead easy to me. It was yeah. kind of hard, right? And but but I was a math person, right? I was a, I was a math and science person. So why am I not good at this? And so I think that this is just such a powerful and important topic. And I'm curious, how did that moment where somebody told you that that's not a thing, right? Around not being a math person. Can you talk about other places in your life where that has then translated to a complete shift in your perspective? Because I think that is like a a huge unlock. Yeah. And you're asking the perfect question because when I, so I give, I do a ton of professional development for teachers now. That's like one of the main things I do is I do a lot of speaking and I always say to teachers, one of the first limiting beliefs a kid develops actually is around math. Most kids, and I'm saying most, like the majority of kids actually are told that they're not math people. We have this idea that being a math person is a very specific thing and only only very specific people belong to that group. So it's really interesting that if you can shift that perception for a kid, you do exactly what you just said. If a kid has been taught, you know, until the age they were seven or 15 or 21, that they're not a math person and you show them that that's wrong, you show them they can do math. What happens in their brain is they say, oh my God, what other things do I believe I can't do in nature? Right that I can shift the perspective on. And that's why I think it's so valuable to be a math educator at this particular time. You have this gift where through math, you're showing kids, not just that they can do math, but that they can do anything they set their mind to. And that's why it's such a privilege to be a math educator. And so I think I've carried that. That is kind of just my philosophy is like, 
I mean, the story of my band, like so quickly, I can tell you when I, well, when I started a band, it was 12 years ago. So I finally, by the way, I had tried out for Canadian Idol. I waited eight (laughs) hours in line. I sang three words of I'll never break your heart. and got told to go home. I literally like never got a role in my school choir. Like there was no like, oh my God, I'm like some prodigy musician, but I always wanted to be in this band. So 12 years ago, I walked up to some guys in a bar and I just told them they'd be better with me in the band. And they let me like try out for their band. And for some reason, I got into this band. It ended after a year, but then I started my real band. And we practiced every weekend for a year. We play our first show. I come, you know, there's a hundred people there. I come out, I'm feeling all good. And this guy comes up to me and goes, you're the singer from the band, right? And I'm like, yes, I am like expecting this compliment. And he looks at me and he goes, I just want you to know you are the worst singer I've ever heard. <laughs> And it's like, that's that exact moment where you're like, okay, I can either like quit now and think I'm innately not good at this. Or I go back to that lesson my math teacher told me, which is there is a way to get, you know, growth mindset. There's a way we're not just born with a fixed set of skills. So I hired a vocal coach. I worked at it eight years later. We opened for Bon Jovi at the Air Canada Center, you know, and it's like that. I think that failing math is like the best thing that ever happened to me because it allowed me to have like such a profound experience with failure and identity that like now I just feel like taking risks is like so not stressful for me because yeah. I don't, I really don't care if I fail ever. Like I honestly get rejected every day. Like our band still doesn't have a record label. We started our own. It's called Rejection Records. Like we like- I love that. Yeah, like we. I sent 50 emails this morning and like not one person has written back to me. Like it's like, I, I think it's like you can really- those moments, we don't hold on to them a lot. Like I was tutoring a girl in math yesterday and she came in not understanding anything. And after, after 10 minutes, I explained something to her and she had one of those amazing, like aha moments, like, Oh my God, I finally get it. And I said to her, how do you feel? Like, do you feel amazing? And she said, I feel actually stupid for not understanding it in the first place. Oh, and I was like, but a mat, like, it's so sad to me. Cause it's like, wait, you're looking at this moment the wrong way. What you should look at it as 10 minutes ago, you had no clue what the fuck was going on. And now you're an expert in it. Take that moment and bring it to every other area of your life. Yeah. It's such a powerful sentiment. And to your point, I think that for many young people, and even adults, their default reaction to that kind of moment is, why didn't I see this before, right? Totally. Which is, to your, to your point, the exact opposite way they should look at that. And I, you know, obviously, you have had the opportunity to have had people to impact your perspective on how you would look at that situation. But I'm curious, that moment where you walked up to those guys at the bar and said, I'd be better as your lead singer, that takes an absurd amount of confidence. And, and I say that simply because I parallel that with, for example you know, going into a networking event when you're trying to get a job or you're trying to, you know, schmooze with senior people at your company. If I transplant this into a more corporate environment, it's like a leap of faith of injecting yourself into a circle and a conversation that you don't feel like you maybe belong into or whatever the case might be. I feel like those are the same situations, just different contexts. And you did that with insane confidence. And I'm curious, is that something you've always had? Is it something that started to develop after you unlocked this kind of perspective? Where did that come from? And how, you know, how did you develop it? That's a great question. And I would say no, for sure. Like I, I think back to when I was a teenager and I was so like, I was both like, I was hyper insecure and aware, like all teenagers are, but I also like always sort of kind of did my own. Like I was always the person that didn't dress like anyone else. And I looked weird and I didn't like, you know, I didn't fit in and da, 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 da. And like, I think 
that's like character building. Like I just, I think I got so used to it. And like, also you realize at a certain point, like it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you like walk into a class late and everyone turns and stares at you. Like no one cares. Like I think partially it's something that comes with age. But the other thing is like, I've never taken life seriously. Like when I was a teenager, I was like, I'm going to die before I'm 30 anyways. Like who gives a fuck? Like I just kind of, I'm like, dude, honestly, like we're all randomly on this planet. Like you're That's only, interesting. the only thing we're doing here is like getting by until we die. You might as well just like do crazy. You shouldn't have fun. Like, I just don't, I'm not that serious about life generally. So I think, I think that helps. Like, I'm kind of like, I am spiritual. Like I'm kind of like, like I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I'm kind of like, you know what? Like the universe is crazy. We don't really understand it. It really scientifically is like random that we're all here. We're all just specks on this earth. Like, who really cares? I don't know. I just don't care that much about anything. Not in an apathetic way, in a way that I'm like, nothing is that big a deal. So why wouldn't I just like have a good time and go for it? That go for it piece is so critical, right? Because I think there's a way to maybe adopt a similar mindset, but take it in a a less positive route. But channeling that, uh, uh, that ethos and saying, let's just go for it, to me, then is just spills out on the rest of your career journey, right? Having this band that nets out in you uh, opening for Bon Jovi, which is an incredible achievement that like a handful of people in the world can say they've done. Well, I know what's crazy about that story is so many people after were like, how did you, how did that happen? And we were like, we applied, we filled out an application. And when we were talking to the Bon Jovi's team, we were like, you must've gotten like thousands of applications. They're like, we didn't. People get, people just... The only requirement is you fill out an application and get a reference letter from a venue you've played before. And people just get, people get to that point and they're like, Ugh, like why yeah. bother? I'm probably not going to get it. Like my, I kind of live life with the idea of like anything could happen. So why wouldn't I like just at least try? Like, it's like, yeah, I just assume the best thing's going to happen until it doesn't. And then I just like go to the next thing. Well, I love that. And, and because it's an incredibly positive way to approach life. And it resonates with me because I've always said, if you don't ask, you don't get, right? Exactly. If you it, don't win, buy a lottery ticket, you don't win the lottery. Same thing. If you don't play, you can't win, right? So from that perspective, I think that's a really, really powerful mindset to have, not just in life, but specifically in one's career across any industry or any profession. You know, if you're sitting there just doing good work, but you're not advocating for self and asking for growth opportunities, they may not come because some people just won't recognize it and hand it to you, right? It has to be asked for. And in this case, like you said, you apply for it. And and here we are sitting on the flip side of that, knowing that most people just don't and they don't get a ton of applications, right? Which is kind of crazy to me um, that this is, that that's not just widely known that you should be applying to these types of things, that there is an opportunity for that. Uh, I'd like to then circle back maybe to, to you talk about getting a, a business degree. Then you went to teacher's college. Those two essentially collide into your path forward after you do private tutoring and you see this opportunity of scale in, in what you were doing. How did you then you know, from, from that moment to today, huge difference from just running private tutoring sessions in your apartment to having this national wide business, right? Where you're helping hundreds, if not thousands of of kids. How did you create the plan to scale to where you are today? And I guess, how quickly did you land on the vision of what was actually on the table for you to achieve with, with what you were building? First of all, I think this is like, I think you have to notice moments in life where like, 
the universe has your back. So for example, you could say, like, I think about all our students we tutor now and they're like, oh my God, I need to go to the exact right thing in university and blah, blah, blah. I really honestly, I'm like, I kind of just like go with the flow. Like, it's not like, oh, I, I'm apathetic and I'm not planning, but I also am very intuitive. So like with the business degree, like I was a delinquent student, as we've discussed, <laughs> I had high math marks, but I forgot to apply to university. So there was only one university that would let me in. And it was the University of Guelph for this business program. So I went to it. Okay. It ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me because Guelph is where I fell in love with live music. We would go to live music right. every day. My program was great, whatever, whatever. And yes, when you look back, it's like, oh my God, thank God I took a business degree and then got a random diploma in graphic design because then I could design all my stuff for this t educational business. So it's like one of those things where you have to remember that paths are not linear. We talk about that all the time. Yeah. Where it comes to like, how did I go from tutoring in my apartment to scaling? Honestly, I've really never had a plan. I'm Again, I'm not trying to be like, flippant about it. I've always just been intuitive. So like I was tutoring when I got too busy, I hired someone. When our space got too small, I looked for another space. Like it's just, it really has been organic growth. I, it, this isn't like I went from zero to 60, right? Like yeah. it was like, I just kept getting more space. I started taking over more of the units in my building. I started hiring more tutors. Like that's, that's it. And, and now like with COVID and everything, again, like we have to pivot online. We get to let go of some of our space. Now we're half online and half in person. Like I think like I'm just trying to think of how to put this. Like, I want to be like financially independent and just have a great life, but I'm not like, oh my God, more, 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 more forever and ever to infinity and beyond. So I just do what kind of feels right. Like if you asked me now what my five-year plan was, I would be like, I don't know. I have this idea actually to open this coffee shop where all of the drinks we make are like witches spells. Maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe I'll move to Bali and go surfing. Maybe I'll be on tour, like literally with Bon Jovi. Like I maybe like, I don't know. So like, again, like whatever, you know? So I think that's it. Like I just intuitively have grown my business and done what felt right. And there's been things where we've done the wrong thing, you know? jealous almost of the the freedom with which you live data the kind of with within that sort of ethos and whether or not you had a very very concrete plan that you followed step by step in terms of scaling your business i think is almost irrelevant but what is more important though is and if anyone who's listening hasn't sensed this yet you have incredible energy that is very unique right and I would say that part of that is probably what differentiated you differentiated you hugely as a tutor uh, you are, you do have an unorthodox approach, right? And I would say that for any child or teenager that's struggling to fit the mold of a math person to then see your unique energy, your unique aesthetic to come out and say, listen, anyone can do this. And you have that approach applied to them. That is, is was probably a big part of what made you so successful as a tutor early on. So my question to you is, as you brought on more people to support and grow your business, was it critical that they too channeled maybe not the same energy because that's probably impossible, but had something like that in their approach that wasn't just your, you know, step one, step two, step three, vanilla tutoring approach? Well, one of the big things is we do not train tutors how to tutor. So like mm. on purpose, because the whole point for me is like, we're the Tinder of tutoring. Like the whole goal should be that like every student has this unique personality and they're coming to you with a set of like personality traits and math traumas and this and that. And we want to find them this person who's going to be like their math mentor, right? Like we want to swipe right on like the perfect match for them. So 
I don't want a bunch of people that are like me, but I want a bunch of people. Like the number one criteria is that like you are intuitive in your tutoring, right? You can tap into what a student needs. You have a specific style and you're compassionate and socio-emotional learning is important to you. So like where we go wrong in education all the time is we separate the emotional from the cerebral, right? We think kids should come to school, shed all of their like any sort of emotional needs they have, sit down, shut up and do the work. But like, you know, what's so important is like when a student comes to class or to tutoring, they're bringing their everything. They're bringing their traumas. They're bringing their fight with their parents. They're bringing like all the times, you know, somebody told them they weren't a math person. Like they're bringing their bad day. And like, it really is like math therapy and you have to be able to do that. So like back to like how we hire tutors, that's a very, very important part. It's not just proficiency in curriculum, but like, are you holistic in your approach to tutoring? And that's what, I think, that's what it is. It's not like be like me. It's be holistic like me. See the full the forest for the trees in every student. Yeah, absolutely. The words math therapy, right? I think are very powerful. And I think you could even remove math and sub it in with any other subject or topic or even work just in general, right? But the acknowledgement that you made there that people bring all of themselves with them and all the baggage when they step into an office or a classroom or otherwise. And, and the fact that generally speaking, you know, education and work often requires you to put that stuff aside and compartmentalize, which is difficult, right? Um, and, and I think that that holistic approach is really, really important and probably a, a really powerful. Um, now, it, speaking of holistic, you have also, aside from, you know, being a rock star at one and then two, a successful entrepreneur standing up the math guru as an organization. I guess my question is, how did you then branch out and diversify? Because you also are a professional speaker. You said you've published scholastic books focused on math, right? Like those opportunities, did you pursue them? How did they present themselves? Essentially, how did you expand to be successful across so many different dimensions? So I think my like mantra is um, I am open to creative new opportunities. That's like my life mantra. So when you're like attached to a particular outcome, like when you're so attached to an outcome, like let's say I'm just like, my goal is to be the best tutoring center in the world and that's it. You miss all of the creative opportunities that knock on your door. So I'm not very like attached to outcome. I'm very open to creative new opportunities. So for example, Scholastic is like a really good example. I had a student's parent that worked at Scholastic and I had a math blog and she approached me one day and said, I've been reading your blog. Would you be interested in coming to Scholastic and talking about writing a math book? I do not teach kids math. I'm a high school math teacher. I could have looked at that and been like, no thanks. Like that actually is really not appealing to me to like write a children's math book. But like I went in and I took the meeting and even though it seemed really challenging, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. Right. So like, I think it's like really being open to those things and like, yeah, like the podcast, I do a lot of work with media. So I do a lot of media interviews and every time the host or the journalist has a visceral reaction when I talk about math and I was chatting with a friend and she was like, it feels like these people need math therapy. And she was like, we should do a podcast. And I was like, okay. Like, so I think it's kind of like that. Like I just say yes more than I say no while trying to be healthy and setting boundaries, which is difficult, but like, and you know, again, you try something and it feels good and you keep doing it or you try something and it doesn't feel good. And like, I've tried started a lot of things and stopped them, you know, and been like, nah, 
that's not, it's not feeling aligned, you know, it's feeling like it's taking more from me than it's giving. But there's a lot of things that like, you know, the band is such a good example. It's like, there are so many fucking obstacles. Like literally we get rejected a thousand times a day. And I've been in this band for 12 years and sure we've opened for Bon Jovi, but like a few weeks ago, we played a show with 10 people there. Right. Like, yeah. I could give up, but it feels so aligned with my purpose and what I derive so much enjoyment from it. All those obstacles are worth it. Whereas there's other things where like, I wrote this outline for a self-help book a few years ago and I was like, I'm going to be the self-help writer. And I pitched it a bunch and I got a bunch of rejections and, you know, people being like, no one's going to publish your book without social media followers. And I was like, I could keep going, but I was like, I feel like actually I'm not even that passionate about this right now. I just want to do it for the sake of doing it. And I'm going to revisit it later. I don't know. Have you read that book? It's like the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. It's not like, it's not, it's not the subtle art of not giving a fuck. It's the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. And it's by Sarah Knight. And she just talks about how we have like a fuck budget. Like you can only give a fuck. About, sorry, now I'm going to swear a lot, but it's like not on purpose. Now, you know, it's like you, we think you can keep saying yes and caring about all these things, but you can't. It's like a yeah. wallet. Like at the end of like the day, you only have a finite amount of fucks to give. So if you're going to care about this and that and the other thing, like you're depleted and you, you're screwed. So like, I think I've really been trying to refine my fuck budget and being like, understanding that if you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. I love that. And I think repositioning quit the, the word quitting with stopping something because it no longer feels good or feels right or feels aligned is an important one. Because I think if I parallel this to my own lived experience, you know, I I've said this on this podcast before I went to university of Waterloo for science and business. And within 15 minutes, my first like science lab, it was biology. I knew I was never going to be a scientist, but I graduated out of science and business right. with a major in biochemistry, right? And a minor in, in some form of marketing, whatever the case was. And why? Because I'm stubborn and I didn't want to change my program and, and, and you know, be seen as having quit or walked away from it. I still saw some level of value of doing it, even though I knew I wasn't going to work in science or research or whatever the case was. But hindsight being 2020, if I had doubled down and focused, maybe going all in on the business route or maybe going in math, uh, math and business or whatever the case may have been, that might have unlocked different paths. Now, I'm very happy where I've landed. So it's one of those things where I can, you know, just curiously explore the alternate yeah. timelines. But if I had had that mentality where if it simply doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel right. And let's put it the way you put it. And I don't give a fuck about it. Right then then why have it inside of my fuck budget type of thing right and, and and so from that perspective you know i think that's a really really important idea that just filling your time with things to do right uh and i feel like a lot of people fall victim to this hustle culture where they have to be perceived as hustling and doing a lot but if you're not really resonating or don't really care about some of the things in there then they're just taking time away from the things that you do care about I think that's a really powerful, powerful idea, but you were about to say, well, no, I, that's exactly, I was just going to say, it's exactly how I feel about camping and ultimate Frisbee. It's like <laughs> it's so much pressure to like those things. And I, for so long, I was like, oh, like, okay, like I need to try again. I'm going to join Frisbee team. And then every Monday I would dread going to Frisbee. And finally I was like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I don't care about playing ultimate Frisbee and I fucking hate camping and I don't need to like it. And it was like the most liberating thing ever. 
I, I feel like I need to maybe unpack this a little bit because this feels super emotionally charged and those are very specific examples. <laughs> is it that like your circle of friends is pressuring you into ultimate uh, frisbee and camping or I, I yeah, have to understand like, this. Do you like camping? First of all, yes, I love camping. I've been camping my whole life, but I don't, I don't project my love for camping onto anybody because I know it's not for everyone. You don't? Because I feel, I feel like it's like dogs, actually. You know what? That's another one. I'll do dogs dog. are worse. I'm going to say it out loud. I don't think I've ever said it in a public forum, but yeah. We're getting canceled. We're getting canceled. But dog people are always like, like, it's like, oh, but you should just have a dog. And like camping, it's like, oh, but like being alone in nature, you just haven't done it the right way. It's like, no, I fucking done it. And I don't like it. Yeah. And like, no, I don't want a dog slobbering on me. Like there's not something wrong with me. This isn't like a deficiency. I just do not like it. Like, oh my God, I'm getting so worked up right now. But like, yeah, you know, you know what I mean? I do, I do, I do. And and I'm not mad at any of it, but I appreciate you elaborating because I think that was important for me to unpack. Just as another funny little or creative, not creative, as another lighthearted tangent, you mentioned Keanu Reeves. He's, you know, I would say a top three action star of all time. Uh, I have had more than one man crush on him. I think John Wick and The Matrix are two of the best movie series of all time. So that deeply resonated with me because that was one of the first three or four sentences you said. Um, can we just also mention for anyone listening that we had like almost a John Wick type moment before we started here? Where, uh, I mean, if you want to elaborate what happened in front of you. Yeah, well, okay, I'll say it here on the pod. Like many women, one of my greatest fears is being murdered by an intruder. <laughs> I live on a very high floor of an apartment and a man was outside my window. He propelled down from my window. He was a window cleaner and it's fine, but it was very shocking and I almost died on the Yeah, I think we entered this conversation with a super high level of adrenaline. But as a result, I think we've been super sharp since it's been a great conversation so far. But bringing it back to more serious topics, um, as much as I enjoyed that, you also have won a couple of awards. And whenever I see that on someone's resume or LinkedIn, I think that for many reasons, some of those external validations, depending on the type of field or business you're in, are pretty important and validating, right? And I'm curious for yourself, given you know your entrepreneurial nature as a speaker, as an author now, uh, were those things that you sought out? Were, th were those things you were approached with? Um, and how exactly do those things work? Because I, th I know there's a lot of people listening that have a side hustle, that ha maybe are an entrepreneur, where some of those external validations would be very important to them building their brand or maybe being a jumping off point for the next, you know, their hockey stick moment. I think that we're both in marketing, we're both in business. Optics are very important. So yeah. I think that the optics of being validated by an outside source, like a Google review even, is very important. It's super important for my business, for example, that I have all these great Google reviews. It's very important for me as a speaker that I have these awards. Like these things are super, super important. However, I will say that like, you know, um, there, just like with anything, there's so many politics and so much red tape involved in the mm -hmm. award sphere. And, and like one example I'll give you is this, like I applied for the, actually, no, I can't say facts. You're going to know my age. I won't say, I'll just say this. Okay. So one example I'll give you is the existence of awards like top 30 under 30 and top 40 under 40. There is no top 50 under 50. Right. And things like that really piss me off. So like, you, you start seeing what these award organizations value and what like kind of messages we're sending. And it's sort of disturbing, I think. They're also like, you know, I'm not saying, oh my God, I'm deserving of all these awards, but like many of these 
um, awards involve like very, very intensive grant, like writing procedures. So right. people who are winning them at bigger organizations, they have an entire department that are writing these award applications for them. So for me as an entrepreneur, it's actually really, really hard to do, to apply for a lot of these things. So I often think like when you see something like the top 50 women under 30 or something, that's great. And I'm really happy for people getting recognition. But I also think it sends a bit of a weird message because you're sort of like the top 50 from what? The people who could afford the time and opportunity to apply? Like these aren't solicited. Most of these awards are by nomination or by self-submission. So right. like, I just, I just think it's important to note that because I went through a period where I was getting so frustrated. There were like two awards I really wanted that I just couldn't get. And when I finally liberated myself by being like, I'm just going to stop applying. Like I don't actually need these for anything like right. other than my own ego and yes it would look good but there are other paths it just made me feel better so like I sound salty I'm very appreciative of the awards I've gotten it feels really really nice to be validated and I'm saying this for anyone out there who's frustrated that they don't have awards like don't worry it's cool it's all politics I really appreciate how vulnerable <laughs> you're willing to be about that because I think that's really important perspective on this space because I've asked similar questions in the past for people in totally different fields, whether it was design or architecture or, or marketing or otherwise, and they had slightly different opinions, right? And, and But their experience may have been one where they did have the resources and the time and skill set to dedicate to crafting and, and, and nominating themselves with a application that met the expectations of whatever the, the, the criteria were or the judgment board was, right? But that perspective that you share, I think is really interesting. And I think the final sentiment of, hey, if you're out there trying to get one of these types of awards, and it's just not working out. Ultimately, it is not going to make or break whether you are successful or not. There are other paths to, yeah. to achieving that. And I think that's a really important sentiment. And I mean, you've both won awards and it sounds like have not won awards you would have liked to. And in spite of that, you are massively successful with your business and all the other endeavors that you've had. So I think that is you know, a sentiment to, to celebrate. Um, I guess I know you, you kind of said that you don't necessarily have a plan or you don't necessarily have a vision, but I am curious though, um, if there was a bucket list of things you'd like to do in the space of STEM, in the space of math, right. And education, what else is there on the horizon that you're really passionate about, or you see maybe as areas of disruption for this space? Um, that's a great question. It's funny because as a private tutoring company, I work outside of like our systems of education, right? The yeah. ones that really, really matter. So I think one of my main, main goals is I would love to eventually have like a bursary program for underprivileged and marginalized students who can, who really need access to this kind of stuff. So like yeah. we are very, very lacking in um, resources for marginalized students, like m private tutors are for students who can afford it. So that's really something big that I want to do. And the other thing is like, one of my biggest goals is to actually get in schools and work with educators. So I do a lot of professional development. Uh. Like professional development is like an hour here and there. So I'm developing like a whole program that I'm eventually going to want to like bring to schools to meet with teachers one-on-one -on -one, or sorry, to meet with teachers once a week to really develop a new way to approach math in schools where all students can access it and need it. And I think that's one of my bigger goals is to really be more in the schools, helping teachers help all of their students through a new approach to math education. That is very exciting. That is very exciting. And 
And building on that, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that the education system in general is ripe for transformation and evolution <laughs> as the generations of te- like the, ge- the generations that are dominating teaching shift away from older generations into millennials, into Gen Zs who are entering that space now? Do you think that maybe that more holistic understanding of people, the baggage they bring, the alternative ways of educating, is that going to become more and more predominant in the space? A hundred percent. Like I even know now from all the teachers conferences I go to and present at, like all of the new teachers, like that we've all grown up with this, right? It's like mental health was not even a topic 10 years ago. Now it is like the topic, like yeah. we get it, right? Like it's like socio-emotional learning is a huge thing. So there's basically a big disconnect because we have all these new teachers now and it's so great who are all like, no, we need to focus on the emotional needs of students, especially in math, for example, like they're recognizing like they have math anxiety too, right? Like all these teachers have math anxiety, their kids have math anxiety. They're seeing it. There's a disconnect between that and what like our system of education wants to happen in the classroom. So you're seeing all these teachers quitting the fields now very quickly saying, look, I am not, don't have the time or the need or anything I need in order to help my kids succeed because I can see that socio-emotional learning is such a pivotal part of their progress. We have no resources for that. You know, the boards of education don't care. The ministry of education doesn't care. I can't, like, my hands are tied and I can't do it. So like, hopefully we're going to see some sort of revolution soon of like, this isn't a Band-Aid solution thing. This is a like tower card moment in the tarot where we need to like rip it up and start from scratch. So like, hopefully that happens, I guess. Or we're all screwed, I guess. <laughs> I well, know. I mean, again, selfishly, as, as, a, as, a, as a parent to two young girls, I right. really do hope that that does happen because obviously, you know, I, in, in retrospect, can see a lot of challenges in the way that I was ed- educated and would love for them to have a more modern, transformed kind of experience in education that sets them up for for success. But that being said, I think that, you know, that vision and that hope is a really beautiful place to leave off. And I just want to say thank you very much for your time today. This has been an unbelievable conversation. I think the impact that you and your business is having is inspirational. And I'm really excited to see where it goes from here and would love to have you back on in the future, Vanessa. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me.